Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan, it is afternoon here on July the 11th, 7-11. Happy 7-11 for those of you who have gotten out there, gotten your free slushy. Do they still do that? I don't know. They do. Yeah, small free slurpee. For, by the time this comes out, people aren't going to hear it. But we hope this in retrospect that people got their free small slurpee. I'm going to go get one later, I think. Today is definitely the day for it's hot here in Boston. Um, right in the middle of... Uh, Trying to finish up our move that we started about about a month ago to the day now, actually, and we've just procrastinated the the last piece of it. But um, excited to get to talk to you as always. How are we doing? Oh, we're doing pretty well, Ricky. Yeah, we haven't talked about it on the program with you and the the new house with you and, and your lovely wife. Congratulations! You're in the new podcast studio, which is really exciting. Looking good, professional. I know we'll have to get you in here. I got a, like a, a proper door. I feel like the acoustics are better, although I don't know. Maybe the people are hearing a little bit of an echo out there. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm very excited. I have a dedicated space now and unfortunately already filling it with my things. It was so nice and open before I put anything in here. And now it's got stuff in it, which is good. Makes it more useful, but maybe not as nice to look at. We'll see. Yeah, well, it's very exciting. A move is always a lot of work, as we were talking and joking about before we started recording. But it's it's really exciting, and it's I am personally very happy as you have chosen to remain close to me, which I selfishly love. Yeah, well, I'm I am also, although I will uh, I will admit that you did not have too much to do with it, but I am I am happy that my wife and I are on the same page. We're city folks hopefully for for life we're sort of set up here now so we're we're gonna try and stick it out but it is an added bonus to have you so close by oh thanks thanks <laughs> you really know how to make a guy feel special <laughs> well anyways with that what are we talking about this week the Supreme Court wrapped up their term just last week and so this week we wanted to talk about some of the follow-up from that term We're largely going to stay away from the legal reasoning behind the major decisions of the court. But what we want to do in this episode is get into like the real life societal and political effects of some of the major Supreme Court decisions. So we'll talk about the the court's decision on affirmative action around the Voting Rights Act, around student loan debt and uh maybe touch on a, a couple more as well the the case in Colorado about the the wedding designer for gay couples uh, and and really just talk about how like those are going to affect us going forward and uh, yeah I'm excited to get in into that um but Ricky before we do a quick reminder the podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen over at Cannon Hill Woodworking they've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018 that's Cannon with two ends you can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com Ricky not only is it hot today here in Boston but it's been hot across 
the country and across the world over the last week. This is a little bit of trivia for you, actually. Last last week, July 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, were the three hottest days ever recorded on Earth. And they've only like been officially recording them since 1979, I think. So it's all relative. But scientists were able to go back and they stated, I think, July 3rd, and I would have to double check this, it might have been July 3rd, July 4th, was scientists believe was the hottest day on Earth in 125,000 years. Well, that's that's good. That's promising, I think. Yeah, it's, no, that's what, like, when you start to, like, see things like that, and I'm sure, I don't even know if it came to your attention, it probably escaped most people's attention, like, that this was just a, a side little thing, and when we're all so concerned with, like, you know, these Supreme Court decisions that we're about to talk about, which we are super concerned about, or NATO or Russia or all these, all these other things. Like, <laughs> feels like people, there's like a blinking red light going on in the background that we're all just kind of ignoring right now. But anyway, I'm going to make light of it, Ricky, because, uh, you know, what when it's super hot outside, it's a good time to go for, you know, a little dip in the, in the ocean or in a pool. So, Ricky, if a, a tree wanted to do that, what would they wear to the pool? I think I got this one. Tree trunks, baby. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, swimming trucks, tree trunks. You did that. That's what we'll, we'll give you that one for sure. <laughs> wow. All right. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, after about not every once in a while, huh? Yeah, we, we appreciate that. All right. Uh, well, after I raised a really serious issue and then quickly laughed about it, uh, let's get into some actual discussion of some real issues when we return. So, Ricky, we've talked about this before, about how so much more attention seems to be paid to the Supreme Court now than it had been in the past. And some of that might just be you and I paying more attention to it. But it does seem like there is a a broader consciousness of what's going on at the Supreme Court in recent years. And largely, I think that's a good thing. We've talked about before, I think any time that the American public is more informed about what's going on, the better. And so I think that for well, at least what appeared from my perspective that so often these Supreme Court rulings were often like super significant in how our politics worked and our society worked, but no one paid any attention to it. It was all about the president or Congress. But now it seems like so much attention is put on the Supreme Court. But again, I think that that's largely a good thing. But I will say that the only downside from my perspective is when people pay attention aren't fully informed. And so there were obviously super controversial issues that came out last year. There was the Bruin gun decision, which expanded gun rights. There were several cases that expanded religious freedoms for Americans. But the one that dominated everything and overshadowed all of the other cases was the, the Dobbs case, which overturned Roe and the women's right to abortion. And and so there was you know that spotlight kind of stayed on the Supreme Court into the fall as, as they heard their new cases and uh stayed on them in June as they released their decisions. And we'll get into all of those decisions, Ricky, but the ones that are most controversial are the ones that have broken down on like largely ideological lines, like those six, three lines. And anybody that's listening to this probably knows enough and pays enough attention to know that the court is split ideologically uh, between more conservative justices uh, of which there are six and more liberal justices of which there are three. This is a super majority that the court hasn't seen in almost a century, probably since like the late 19 teens, 1920s. So it, it is uh, somewhat 
of a, a novel court for, for our lifetimes and the, the splits, the cases that get split along those ideological lines are the ones that receive the most attention. But I did want to highlight some some stats because the Supreme Court decides about 60 cases every year. I think this term they, they decided 58. And while the court is undoubtedly splintered, as we've talked about, those the six conservative justices don't always align and oftentimes find themselves in alignment with the more liberal justices. Um, so th- this uh, this session of of the court, uh, just just some interesting. What I thought were interesting uh, stats for you were that there were only five cases out of the fifty eight decided on a, on the six three majority. Um, Justice Sotomayor, who is one of the more, if not the most liberal justice on the court, she uh, she dissented less often than Justice Thomas, who is one of, if not the most conservative justice on the court. Uh, justice Kavanaugh continues to be the kind of swing justice. He was in the majority most often. The ACLU, which has traditionally been a more liberal organization, um, they were 11 and 7 this year in cases in which they were a party to or filed an amicus brief for it. Um, and so I think even though we're about to get into some of the more controversial decisions and the ones that broke down along ideological lines, I do think it's important to step back and be like, the court more, most often actually either agrees in, in large like seven two eight one unanimous decisions, or they're not split along ideological lines. Some of the cases we're not going to talk about, but like the court preserved uh, like the Indian Welfare Act and some, some other things that you might not have expected. They they knocked down like the independent state legislature theory out of North Carolina and they did it the 6-3. So uh, just when people understandably are all upset, if you look at, you know, they point to Dobbs this year and the Harvard and UNC affirmative action cases this, this year, it's largely the court is is not actually split like this. It's just coming out that way in some of the most significant cases. Yeah. I I, I mean, I think that is an, definitely an interesting point and certainly worth making note of. I think maybe the, unfortunately, the problem for the court is the cases that were the most or garnered the most media attention going into sort of the legislative calendar are the ones that predominantly were decided in the ways that, everyone said based on the makeup of the court, they would be decided. And so that, I don't know. I I think I take that for what you will, but certainly people who already have kind of an idea that the, not, I mean, yeah, I I guess to some, to some degree that the court is rigged or whatever, it's too political when the, there are only five cases that they follow, even if it was five out of 60 something, if they all get decided exactly the way that they expected them to be decided based on who's the justices. I, th- I still like, unfortunately, I still think that's like problematic for the court, but it's, I suppose, still worth pointing out. Yeah. The court for sure has a perception problem. And so I am doing my very, very small part to try to combat that perception problem. But it's the most significant case, the case is actually where the case is, out of against Harvard and against uh, the University of North Carolina, which um, challenged like the race-based admissions policies of both those schools. The reason there were two cases is that UNC is a public school, so they are bound by the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause, and Harvard is a private school, so they are bound by Title VI, which is essentially, I'm, I'm super generally, but like essentially a, like a civil rights 
statutory congressional act, um, but which, which does the same thing, which pr- prohibits discrimination based on race. So that's why both those cases were joined, as everyone pro- who's listening probably knows by now, is the the justices ruled against Harvard and UNC and their race-based admissions policies. While Justice Roberts, who wrote the opinion, didn't outright overrule some of the previous cases, he certainly uh, closed the door fairly strongly on consideration, at least how universities have considered race in the past 50 years in their policies. Justice Thomas, no surprise, writing uh, in concurrence, went farther and said that essentially this is a rejection of all of those previous policies and that schools should not be able to uh, include race in any way when evaluating their candidates for admission. Justice Jackson wrote a fiery dissent. Justice I, Thomas in, in Jackson's concurrence and dissent were as fiery as Supreme Court decisions get and as personal as decisions get in terms of really going after each other because they are just diametrically opposed on this. And we talked about this, Ricky, with Adam last week. It's two Black Americans that have ascended to the highest court in the land who just hold like fundamentally different views on race. But the upshot of this for college is that colleges are not going to be able to consider race in the same way that they have been considering it in the past 50 years. They're going to have to adjust. And this is likely to lead to other challenges to race-based affirmative action programs, not on the college level. We know these exist in internship programs and training programs and hiring programs. And this is obviously the next frontier for conservative activists or those who are against affirmative action is now that it's out of college, theoretically, the door is open to attack affirmative based affirmative action based programs across the spectrum. So what what's your takeaway from this decision? Like this is now looking at the post affirmative action era in a lot of ways, uh, first time in our lifetime, certainly. And so I'm curious your, your initial thoughts on it. Yeah, I mean the the case itself is really interesting. I think to 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 try and follow, right? Because it brought about like largely by Asian Americans who feel discriminated against because they have some of the highest test scores around and are yet finding themselves unable to get into schools where people who have lower test scores are getting into. And you know, you can put affirmative action as like part of the. I don't know if blame is the right word, but if you if you follow the case at all, like reading some of the admissions notes that uh, I, I don't really know much about the UNC side of it, but the Harvard side was wild, like totally. Nice. Yeah. yeah, not I mean, great. Yeah. How can out racist, like very much characterizing these different applicants as if they were all the same person. And I mean, I'd, I would sort of be a liar, too, if I didn't admit that when I when I was thinking about college. I was thinking about myself as like somebody who is, you know, of of Indian descent, but an Asian American and thinking like, I don't stand a chance because I don't really have anything that sets me apart. And I'm also not at the elite elite in terms of SAT scores or what have you. And so for me, I, I don't know that I was ever like really... It was, I, I don't think I was ever thinking, okay, it's the, you know, four or 5% of students that are being admitted because of affirmative action that is making it harder for me. It's like, I felt like I was only being compared against other people who look like me. And I think, I think if we, if we take an honest look at what affirmative action does in terms of how 
applicants have to portray themselves as they like go to, as they're like trying to sell themselves to colleges. I think your race and your background becomes a bigger part of it than maybe your academic ambitions or maybe, yeah, what you want to do or why you want to be at this school. And I think there's, there is a reason to be critical of the process as it exists. Um, But that being said, I think the importance or like the objective of affirmative action is one that we haven't reached yet. And so I think in so many ways, and I, I, I think this is a problem that the court has had in, in several different arenas and this being one of them where, okay, maybe you, you find fault with like the method that we're trying to use to reach a certain objective, but if the only thing that you can do about it is to just undo the method and then just say either a, this objective is no longer worth pursuing, which is right. Equality and equality of opportunity to the highest levels, which basically in our society requires a four-year education in, at a, at a, you know, at a four-year university um, that like that, that is not, that's no longer something worth achieving. I guess my, on the flip side, my hope is at the university level, there is so much more transparency into the admissions process than there was before. You'll still be able to see the stats of, you know, what is this, you know, incoming freshman class look like? Where do they come from? What, you know, what are their backgrounds? Hopefully we'll get to more deeper levels than just race. I think really this is going to prevent college admissions counselors from getting that, you know, the first box are you Hispanic? Are you black? Are you, you know, Asian American? And then like filtering applications that way and finding out through essays or through schools or where, you know, actual like geographic locations, where did they grow up? Like, who is this person likely to be and how can they contribute to our school? So I think potentially there's some benefit to it. It's, it's obviously dangerous. Maybe I think what you were mentioning, and I know I'm prattling, so I'm going to, tie with this thing. I think the the area that it is potentially scarier is that <clears throat> uh, sort of the second order effect. Like how can we now go after jobs or go after sort of whatever internships that use that require kind of a sh- affirmative action style diversity because those have far less transparency and are far harder for people to understand where discrimination is happening um, versus public universities or private colleges where almost all the information about the school and about the incoming class is available um, for for people to to sort of see, like, has there been a, a market step back? Yeah, I want to come back to that point. I think just sticking with the college thing for a minute, the downside to this is that I think you and I both recognize, and I would venture to say a majority of Americans recognize that things are not equal in this country. We haven't uh, total, we haven't come close to making up the discrimination that Black Americans in particular, but Brown and Hispanic Americans too, have suffered in, in our society. And so, and we we talked about that extensively on our Juneteenth episode. If you didn't listen to that, we get really into like the the racial wealth gap and all of those issues. But so, if if we can agree that we haven't rectified those those issues of historic and systemic racism 
well, as Adam was talking about last week, like this was one of the policies that helped us try to rectify it. It was not a, you know, a, a solution for everything. There wasn't like this panacea that obviously if, if we have affirmative action, we're going to be good, but it, it, it did help in a lot of ways. And as, as you noted, Ricky, the reasons you know, I hate to keep harping on them, <clears throat> but they're just so relevant to this whole saga, but like that justice Jackson and justice Thomas are able to get to the Supreme court is because they attended, you know, Harvard and Yale and, to be on the Supreme Court, you pretty much have to attend those schools, rightly or wrongly, but like you do. And because they got to go to those schools, they got to. I think Thomas's point to all of that was always like, I didn't get there because of affirmative action or because I was black. I got there because of my own merit. And I think that's a really legitimate point. But anyway, I think I digress. But I think the point is that affirmative action was one of the tools that we were using to help trying to solve or improve some of the conditions in in our country and erasing that is is difficult as, as justice jackson said in her dissent just if we say that if we, we can't if we just say that we're in a like race neutral or a, you know a, a post-racial or a race blind society it doesn't make it so right it's like just kind of in some ways just putting your head in the sand and just being like all right racism is over and part of the case that it didn't quite overrule but essentially did was this case from 2003 the Grutter versus Michigan uh, case in which um, Justice O'Connor writing for the majority said that like, hey, hopefully this won't be necessary in 25 years. And it said, it put this like sunset clause into affirmative action. And what conservatives said is like, you can't keep just putting sunset clauses in and saying like, all right, you know, another, another 10 years. But what liberals are saying is like, you're right, you can't just put like an end date on racism in society. Like, like hopefully, yeah, I hope one day it won't be necessary, but like that day isn't today. And so I think eight states have already banned affirmative action in their public institutions. And I, what I think is really interesting is that California and Michigan are two of the states that have done that, which are like the two main uh, Supreme Court precedent affirmative action cases, which might state in numbers back this up that affirmative action actually isn't a super popular policy in the United States like widely across obviously that varies within um racial racial and socioeconomic groups but what we've seen in california for for at least is that like the the share of black and hispanic students has fallen uh, pretty significantly at at those universities and i know the uc system has done extensive outreach they've thrown hundreds of millions of dollars to try to get into like low uh like socioeconomic diverse communities and because what conservatives always say is that like race in some ways like you're making it a proxy for socioeconomic status right like what we really want is we should be getting into you know lower income neighborhoods and trying to get more students from lower income backgrounds but what the uc system has found is despite all of their efforts that black and hispanic students in in their system in college lag far behind like the high school graduates and so i I do think there's like a legitimate concern that that could happen and colleges are really going to have to work hard to make sure that doesn't. And I don't think it's necessarily the Harvards and the UNCs of the world, both of which are elite institutions that are going to, to suffer as much, but it's, it's like the next level and the levels below that of colleges that you wonder how, how diverse those colleges are going to be. Yeah. And it's, it's certainly like a risk and it's, it's interesting that you kind of have to take like the capitalist view you know, for, for a university that if they're not charging the tuition to the student, then they're 
like it's almost sad to say their benefit comes from that student graduating and then like either doing something you know of note to bring sort of fame and celebrity to the university or like making a ton of money and then giving back right like there those are the two things that the the ways that universities can make money off students if they don't charge them tuition and right if the students come to the university and and are either not prepared or don't have the the support system to make it through then all of a sudden like all of those benefits are also gone and for smaller colleges that may also be may already be struggling financially that is certainly a burden but again it's it's one of those things that like did affirmative action really address that ever or what has the problem just been, been so long before we even get to college that we right like i i don't I think affirmative action in, in, in its ability to uh, require or mandate diversity at colleges maybe had a benefit there, but in terms of, right, like, you know, when is the sunset clause going to kick in? When is it going to have enough of an effect societally that we say that we don't need it anymore? It, I don't know that there are, there are, there are too many direct, too much direct evidence to to be able to point to the dent that it has made in in lessening inequality as a specific policy on its own. I guess that's kind of hard to do. I think one of the points though that you that you brought up sort of the difference between Thomas and and Jackson on the idea of affirmative action I think is an an interesting one and an important one um that like he while obviously, or not potentially not obviously, but while ostensibly benefiting from affirmative action or affirmative action like policies to like promote diversity in the time that he sort of came up, has always been someone who's fought sort of had to, in his own mind, fight the fact that I'm here because of affirmative action. Like he has always believed that the harm that affirmative action does is that any student that may or may not benefit from it automatically gets labeled by peers as only here because of affirmative action. And I think that that's like a, as like a racial minority, that's something that you, it's like inescapable to think about, like, did I get here on my own or is there some kind of diversity? And I mean, I guess that applies to really anybody (laughs) uh, of a minority group. Did I get here because of, some kind of a quota or some kind of diversity initiative. And that's, that's tough. Um, But at the same time, it's like, well, without some of these things, we've seen how institutions have, you know, whether either explicitly or implicitly created longstanding patterns of discrimination. So it's like, yeah, what's the, (laughs) you <laughs> catch 22 i guess yeah damn if you do damn if you don't I, just on that note there was a, a famous story that's been kind of making the rounds in the wake of this decision from the next this is sitting and he's sitting while reagan is president so kind of the kind of the upper echelon here while, while thomas is, is working uh, before he becomes the supreme court justice and one of reagan's uh, advisors says like see clarence here he's an example of like the, the kind of affirmative action diversity he wants and he's not doing it to be racist he's actually saying like look these are why as conservatives we should support these programs because we can get like strong conservative diverse thinkers in rooms like this it's it's exactly why people like diversity but 
Thomas takes that and he never forgets it. And he he took it as a slight, as this guy was saying, he's only here because of affirmative action. And if, if he wasn't, he wouldn't, be, if it wasn't affirmative action, he wouldn't be here. And he's essentially been on a 35 year crusade to make sure in his mind that no other black person or minority is going to feel like that again. Yeah. And that's, and well, and, and this is also, I think very emblematic of what is, wrong not wrong with the supreme court but what is a part of the supreme court that as much as our ideal version of it would try and suppress is that it is made up of individuals with their their personal experiences and beliefs um and and yeah and while they are you know tasked with applying the law as it is written uh is impossible to take their beings out of it i guess they're they're persons yeah of course and that's why so much scrutiny goes into like who these justices are like i think rightly or wrongly and you're kind of pointing towards rightly it's it's almost fair to question how all of these beliefs play into your view of the law because it's inevitable you don't get to go in there as much as they try to and i really believe that they do try to go in there and just what is the law saying and they might come out different ways but like there's just no way that you can separate parts of yourself and and try to make those decisions i will say to the more positive aspects that we might potentially get from this decision is that the baki decision which was the california 1978 california decision which originally said maintained affirmative action with the goal of creating more diversity and we've talked about how diversity has become synonymous with racial diversity in recent years, but that's really not what that court was saying and was never, in my opinion, was not the original intention of affirmative action, at least as articulated in the courts. And this might force the Harvards and the UNCs of the world to really go out and try to, when you're thinking about a diverse class, we're talking about all t- types of diversity. We're talking about socioeconomic and racial and gender and sexuality and um beliefs, uh, political beliefs. You know, uh, and I think you might actually get more diversity in a lot of ways if you're forced to just um, consider all, like the whole the whole person. I will say that, at least in Roberts's opinion, definitely not in Thomas's concurrence, but Roberts allowed universities to 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 evaluate like the if, if example, and you as a black American or as an Indian American or as an Asian American, you had a particular experience or growing up in that in that way as a minority, again, could be racial, could be some other minority. And you can write about that because it's affected you personally. And Robert's belief is like, look, now we're evaluating you because you overcome or you've been shaped by your status as minority, as opposed to just as you said, grouping like all Black Americans or all Asian Americans together. And I think that if that's really how it comes out, that's, I think, a really positive development in college admissions. Yeah, I mean, it it'll, it will be interesting to see because, right, we know that the, that the Harvards of the worlds and the UNCs probably are getting tens, uh, if not hundreds of thousands of applications now every year. And that has always been the challenge for them. It's like, how do we actually get to who these people are, who these kids are, um, what during this like three month time frame we have to read their 250 word essay to, you know, that, but maybe there are some tools for that now, like AI and all this other stuff. Like hopefully there'll be a, like you said, like a technological solution to, to get more of the, the diversity that they were after, which is like, yeah, actually different. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Like the true meaning of the first, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess, yeah, I, I did not know the statistics in California. I did know that, that it was, yeah, by that, that California, right. Ostensibly the most liberal, oh man, I just that word too many times this, this podcast, but anyways, yeah, the most liberal state out there that, uh, that, that they had sort of done away with affirmative action. I did not know that, that the numbers had fallen in those states though. I think that that's really something interesting that or not interesting, but something that, that we would have to, to keep an eye on. Um, but yeah. Yeah. And I think hopefully we do, right. I hope that for people that are excited by this decision or angry at this decision that you that we do keep an eye on it. And this just doesn't become something else we forget because like I said, at, at the top of the, my, my spiel was that like this engagement in consciousness of the Supreme court is, is great in a lot of ways. And so I hope we do continue to see this. And if, if liberals are proven right, then they should be able to say, look, that this, this is actually really harmed a lot of, this has made things less equal, contrary to what you said in your opinion. And if conservatives, are right, they they should be able to point that out too. It's like, this is what we've always said is that once we take race out of things, we can actually still achieve a lot of the same and even some more goals. So like you said, we'll see, we'll keep an eye on it. Uh, let's take a little break. And then when we come back, let's talk about some of these other cases. The next case that provoked the most reaction was the court striking down President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. This was not a surprise. Ricky, we and I talked about this when President Biden first announced it back end of August, and we we went into it in depth in that episode. So if anybody wants to check that out, would encourage you to do so. Uh, But we talked about why President Biden wanted to do this. At the time, I said this was that had no chance of getting through the Supreme Court. And I also thought it was bad policy. But it's been interesting to me, Ricky, and I, I, I want you to try to explain this to me. And it doesn't have to be your personal belief, but why why is there such outrage over this like i i legitimately don't understand why people feel like they are entitled to get their loans forgiven by the government so ricky i'll I'll give you a chance to think on that because i just threw that question i'd be like for example this is obviously a senator warren she's she's been beating this drum uh for years now and she's sent out a million emails in the last couple of weeks being like, you know, this rogue out of control hijacked court and that didn't happen by accident. And I, I speak to people all over the, all over the country and hardworking people that like tell me how they've been crushed by student debt. And it's like, okay, I, I believe that like student debt is a real problem in society, but th- this sense of entitlement of like this, like this righteous indignation that like, that the government's not paying for the loans that I signed up for. I legitimately don't understand that. Yeah. I, well, as, as you know, I think I caught a little bit of flack for some of the, you know, the progressives or the folks on the left that listen to this podcast for not really being on the, on the side of total loan forgiveness. I, I think there is this idea of the, the rat, like, the steep incline of college tuition costs, right? Like over the last 30 years, I think basically public tuition has doubled and private tuition has doubled public tuition going from like five to 10 grand on average, private 20 to 40, but like at the elite institutions, like 60 to 80, right? These insane numbers. I think that there's basically this understanding or not understanding, but for the vast majority of 
student loan debt holders who are uh, not holders, but the ones who have the debt who owe money, they're in in somewhere between 25 to like 40 years old. They didn't get the same, they basically got the same education that, you know, those folks 10 or 20 years before them, but they paid double for it. And now they're on the hook for these loans that I think there was perhaps like some false advertising or something that the, the idea that, hey, as long as you, you take out this loan, you're going to be able to pay it back to tenfold, no problem. And what we're seeing is that the amount of money that kids had to take out, right? It's not like $20,000 or $40,000 over four years. It's like $100,000 to, you know, upwards of like 150, 200, right? I, I think these amounts are so crushing in a lot of instances that there's like this idea that like, instead of forcing these kids to just basically file for bankruptcy and default, that the government should somehow understand that this situation is not entirely of their own doing, that they didn't force tuition rates to rise in the way that they did and that student loans were the only way that they had. And also they were 18 years old. Like, should they really have been able to sign up for $150,000 in loans? I don't know. If I'm making the argument, I think that's where I'd go with it, is that the amount of money that they had to take out is almost absurd. Who? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I'd say that that's, that's where I put it, that there is like a, a generation of people for whom home ownership is like almost impossible, even like to, to certain extents, like proper car ownership or whatever. There are like a lot of things that are becoming unattainable because they're saddled with this debt. Now, did we see like, you know, student loans have been paused for like three or four, you know, it's been, it's been a while that pe- folks haven't had to pay really their student loans, myself included. Is that, have we seen sort of people kind of getting out of the holes of like the other debts that you incur in, as a, as a person living in, in this kind of society? Like, I don't, I don't know that that's true either. And so then, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think it's almost assuredly not true. I, it, uh, <laughs> what I think it's not coincidentally like helped contribute to inflation. Like all of that money, like those really millions, trillions of dollars that people would be paying to their student loans were now money they could just spend on other things. And this is where President Biden did catch some flack because there was no real warning. Like for years, Ricky, President Biden was like, I can't do this. Even in it, this was in the the opinion, I forget who wrote it. The conservative opinion was they quoted Nancy Pelosi in 2021 being like, no, no, presidents can't do that. Right. And like this, so like this was, except for like the very far left, everyone agreed for years that like you, you just couldn't with a swipe of the pen, write this all away. And quite honestly, as we've discussed, it just, it wouldn't be fair because this is like who every, all of these dollars come from somewhere. And essentially you'd be subsidizing this relatively wealthy, high income group of people, college graduates with people who did not attend or complete college. And we talked about this again back, and I think it was episode 62. We talked about this more in depth, but like, in my opinion, the main rationale, sorry to keep coming back to this, right? The main rationale to do this would be to try to alleviate some of like the, the systemic racism issues that we have, because we know that black and Hispanic students borrow more often, and they also borrow more money. So they're more in debt, but this plan would not have done, wouldn't have solved that because it was given 10,000, $20,000 to everybody, which 
disproportionately actually is or like white Americans who, even if they're not wealthy now, are probably because of their college degree or because of their graduate degree on the path to potentially lucrative high income uh, career. So it's just like it never made any sense for me. And so I'd, that's where I do think when Biden's out there now, he's like fighting for it and like defending it in again, he's like real politic, like he's up for re-election and he needs these voters who are now upset that like he didn't deliver on his promises. I get that. But it's like, bro, you like you never knew, you never thought you could do this. Like, you you can't do it. And it's not good policy. I don't know that. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I still am surprised that sort of like the, the far, the sort of the, the, marquee progressives of the party are in lockstep supporting this type of policy specifically for the reasons that you said like the people who it'll benefit the most tend to have if not the most money now that have the highest earning potential in the future and the people who will have to subsidize it subsidize it is everybody so that includes those who for you know for like foregoed college uh, perhaps we're going like more income later so as not to have this kind of debt. And that specifically seems unfair. And I think it, by and large, it also just doesn't solve the problem, which is these absolutely insane tuition rates. And that like, hey, if you're going to write off $1.75 trillion or whatever, 92% of that, which I think is the federal portion of the overall student debt, um, maybe there's some better avenues to spend it to make sort of kind of a long-term thing. Yeah, that being said, it's, again, it's like student debt, $1.75 trillion in student debt is still a problem, right? Like It's like, it's one of those things where we can say, hey, this is illegal and we shouldn't do it and that's fine. But we have this, Congress that can't act on these types of things at all. And it's like, yes, the court, I I suppose, is is within its rights. I'm not even terribly unhappy with this, like, specific decision. But at the same time, the real world implication is now this debt, this crushing amount of debt will go back on the backs of people who themselves may not be able to afford it and, or you know, who, who a large portion may not be able to afford it, like you said, the largest chunks of the debt are often held by people for whom we expected kind of the college experience was going to help the most and is now potentially making it doing more harm than good. Right. So like there's, there's that too. And and certainly some people who didn't even, who weren't even able to finish college and still have loans from their time in school. So like, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure how I feel specifically about what the Supreme Court did. I think to some extent, I don't think pre- this is like the the realm for presidents, right? We know Congress shall have control of the purse. At the same time, it's just like, it's frustrating that clearly this is a big issue that a lot of people are paying attention to, that we can't get some kind of action on it. And like, even if, you know, it's it's almost you almost wish that like Congress would say, Hey, president, Mr. President, you know, you sign this thing. We don't think you're supposed to do this, but here's, here's like how we would do it. Right. Like you force our hand. Now we're going to come to the table. And instead it's like, well, it's easier to kind of run to the courts and have them kill it. And we'll just like, forget about it and move on. And that's, 
that to me is like the sort of saddest outcome. Saddest. Yeah. No, I think that's one of the strengths or positives of executive orders, like is just kind of putting a marker out there, maybe knowing that it's not totally constitutional, understanding you're going to lose in the courts. And that's just like, that's just how it is. Like, that's how the system is set up. And that's okay. But it's supposed to hopefully push people in, and by people, I mean Congress, to actually do their job. And I, one of the reasons to keep coming back to this, Ricky, is like, why do people, one of the reasons people care so much about what the Supreme Court does is because they are the ones that are largely setting like these these norms in these laws in society. And that's because Congress is is not acting. I will say this now goes back to the affirmative action things is while the Supreme Court overruled, kind of got rid of affirmative action, they didn't get rid of like legacy uh, considerations and admission. Legacy is uh, essentially children of former students at the, at the school because that's what does that a, do? <laughs> what? It's, that's not a good look. No, no, it's not a good look, right? And so, but one of the things in response, I think it was um, Jeff Markley from Oregon and uh, Hakeem Jeffries from New York. They had they tried to introduce this bill uh, a couple terms ago. It didn't get anywhere, but they're going to reintroduce it, which would also ban legacy admissions in in colleges. I, and this is kind of where you're like, okay, right, Congress, you you don't like what's going on? Well, respond to it, do something, and like that's exactly what we want to see. And now we're back on that topic, but I I do think that's really interesting because one of the the people that were fighting against kind of like the Asian Americans that were fighting against the Harvard and UNC cases, they were saying that like one way that Harvard and UNC could solve this diversity issue is just stop giving preferences to athletes, legacies, uh, deans list priority, which are just like people the dean knows and, uh, and children of faculty, ALDCs is what they're called. And like, they, they are pretty much like walking in and they're overwhelmingly like white and wealthy because like, their families had been at that school or their families are teaching at this school. So whatever, I think to your point of asking, having Congress act, that's exactly what we want to do. And as we said, Ricky, back with the the student debt issue back in August, when we talked about it, is that like, I agree with you. This is a, a huge problem with our system right now. And it's preventing, it, it's harming our economy because for all the reasons that you said is that people aren't able to then afford homes and, and move out. And maybe if you can't afford a home, you delay having a family. It's all sorts of kind of down downstream effects of not of having such burdensome student loan debt. But the solutions are like, this wouldn't have incentivized colleges at all to, to drop their tuition rates. And it wouldn't have incentivized students to stop taking out huge loans because both of them would be like, well, the federal government's probably just going to wipe away some of those down the road. Uh, and But this, this, hopefully this would force Congress states to act and to try to rein in at some level these out of control student tuitions. And as as you rightly pointed out, should we be allowing 18-year-olds? I understand that they're like legally adults, but should we be allowing them to sign on for hundreds of thousands of dollars in, in debt that there's going to cripple them potentially and for the next several decades? I don't think th- those are really like root cause issues that we should be addressing. Yeah, agreed. All right. Well, when we come back, let's talk about just two final cases quickly. In addition to the Supreme Court's decision on student loans, which was issued on the final day of its term, the Supreme Court, certainly they they saved some of their most fiery opinions for last, uh, also issued an opinion out of Colorado. And people have probably heard of the the cake baking case out of Colorado a, f- a few years back in which a wedding cake designer 
felt like he was being discriminated against because he didn't want to make wedding cakes for homosexual couples. And the Colorado found that he was in violation of their anti-discrimination statute. The court found for him on pretty narrow grounds. This case also out of Colorado, also having to do with homosexual weddings. We have a woman who wants to design uh, wedding websites for people. This is like a test case. This wasn't nothing even really happened here, which is his own set of like legal issues. But essentially what she was saying was that she wants to design these wedding websites. And if a gay couple came to her, she wants to be able to say that, no, that I, my beliefs don't allow me to make websites for you. And the court put aside like the religious First Amendment aspects of the case and focused on the First Amendment, like freedom of speech aspects and said pretty much that the government can't compel someone to speak. So the, if, if a gay couple comes to this woman and says, hey, make me, I'm going to pay you to make me a wedding website, she can say no, because I don't believe in that. And the, the state can't compel her to so speak. The legal aspects of it have their own uh, kind of the, the own web. But the political aspects and the societal aspects, I think, are what are, are really worth discussing. As Justice Sotomayor said in her dissent, for the first time, the court allows a business to discriminate against a group of people, a protected class of people, um, based on, on who they are. And while this, in, in some ways, I, I think the court doesn't and shouldn't pay attention to like what's happening in society at large, Ricky. But and I think you could credibly claim that this is a victory for First Amendment free speech rights as opposed to a rolling back of LGBTQ rights. But I think you could credibly claim the opposite, too, is that for really almost two decades now, LGBTQ rights at the court level, the highest court level, have advanced steadily and culminated in Obergefell, as we've talked about with the recognition and legalization of same-sex marriage. That progress stopped here. And what we're seeing also in society is a backsliding of tolerance towards LGBTQ people. And there are, I think, a myriad of reasons for that. But I think this is one, like another indication of a society that seemed to be moving pretty steadily forward on these rights and is no longer moving that way. Yeah, I I, I think it is more of the latter than the former. I don't know that, right, like, I I think the First Amendment was tenuously applied here. I do, to some degree, follow the reasoning, but I guess I've always thought of the Bill of Rights as like a, they expand your rights in as far as your rights no longer impede somebody else's rights to live their life the way that they want to. And this is one of those things. I mean, you know, it, I mean, it reminds me of the restaurants that say like, yeah, we reserve the right to reserve, you know, refuse service to whoever. And we know exactly who those signs in the door were intended for when we basically said, sure, like you can't specifically put on your website that we don't serve or, you know, put on your door that we don't serve black Americans anymore, but this is, but you're allowed to decide who you serve and who you don't serve. And I think that that, yeah, I mean, to me, it really feels like a two steps forward, 
one step back. The this the, the case, as you were saying, like is like a very odd one to have gotten as far as the Supreme Court. I don't know if you've seen any of like the, the designs this website designer makes, but this, this is not one for whose services are uh, are really in are really a hot commodity, but. That like so like they're you know the standing issues and it almost felt like a, like a hypothetical uh, that made it all the way to the Supreme Court, but yeah I I I think that the implication is is exactly as you said that there is now an opening for people to claim First Amendment freedom to discriminate and it is like whether it's tied here directly on religious lines or not, it's basically being, I feel like it's being, you know, shrouded in this. My, my religion doesn't allow me to believe in these things. And I think, I I think we've talked about these before. There are things that are up for debate that you can believe in or not believe in. And obviously our society has kind of, evolved our thinking on a lot of these things but in my mind we have gotten to a place in the in this here the 21st century the second decade of the 21st century where like you are no longer able to believe that someone has a sexual orientation that is other than heterosexual like it exists it is a fact and so this is now to me it you know as much as someone's race is a fact about who they are so is their sexual orientation and so the the, you like it just shouldn't be something that you get to believe in or not it's to me that's doesn't make sense and is antithetical to how we are have constructed our society largely on secular lines like this feels a very religious thing yeah and i think if you are fearful of this decision if you don't as you aren't aren't if you don't buy like the first amendment freedom of speech right here what you might be fearful of is this backsliding of rights where it's not just a wedding designer now that can discriminate against a gay couple but it's other people that now can say well uh, my beliefs don't allow me to serve you in the same way that i serve heterosexual couples and while I think there are like, like an EMT who shows up at a house to like yeah. resuscitate someone, is he going to be able to be like, ah, that's not, this one's not for me? Like that, I don't know. There's <laughs> stuff in there that seems very scary, right? And I'm not. I think there are complex legal issues there. And obviously, like your your example would be like a government official acting, which might be different than in like a private individual. But that, no, nonetheless, if you are a homosexual person in this country, you might be looking around and being like. I could now maybe legitimately get refused service somewhere because people could claim that their rights. And this, as just Sotomayor said, like that's really the first time we'd allow that to happen. And certainly you can debate whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. But I think a lot of people out there would, would say that this is a backsliding in a lot of ways of protections for people in, you know, so-called protected classes. And again, this goes against like, or goes along with what we've seen is uh, a backsliding in support for even like homosexual couples, which we had seen like that support rise almost exponentially since the early 2000s. And I think peaked in 2021, maybe at like over 70% of Americans were saying that like, yeah, I support homosexual couples. Now it's down to 60%, which is still a majority, but 
it's not going that way anymore. And when obviously when you start to talk about trans issues, a majority of Americans actually don't believe that like trans people, like I, I don't believe that like someone can be a different sex than was assigned at their birth. Um, which again, I think there's there's a whole argument that we have about up there, but I just think that this is what we have seen in the last few years in particular. And now we're seeing at our highest level of justice is that there's not nearly as much support for the rights of these people as there were previously. Yeah. I, I guess it, I guess it, maybe there's something to, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't know in terms of like what a business, like a website design should, should be compelled or to do or not do, especially if they have to be like, if you're asking them to be creative about, something and I think you could say whatever something's not in my wheelhouse or something because I just I don't think about those things or what whatever whatever it may be I I think maybe a, a question I have specific to this case and I I mean I guess because of the the first amendment I I feel like the the courts had to use this first amendment uh argument specifically because it's in contradiction to a, a state law, which, you know, if we look at Roe and Dobbs was decided in, in basically the exact opposite direction, which was states should have their rights to do whatever they want on this issue. Um, so if you're thinking that this is a state's rights court, and then you see them decide this case, I don't know. I think it's, I think that's interesting, like as, as well as like a point counterpoint into like, how, how am I, how do I, how am I supposed to square the rationale? And like, yeah, of course we use the first amendment, which is a federally protected amendment. And so therefore states can't right? like that's, that's the idea. But I think otherwise, like the first amendment to me, doesn't, I don't know. It, I, it, yeah, it just feels very tenuously applied here, but it feels like they had to do that because otherwise they don't really have a reason to be, overturning this state law that's an anti-discrimination law on the other hand and perhaps ideologically consistent the court did and probably their most surprising decision of this term did reject uh, uh alabama's argument for their gerrymandered map uh, and uh, alabama's case was uh really designed to go after to gut the Voting Rights Act even further than it has been over the past decade. This particularly was going after Section 2, which was one of the few sections of the Voting Rights Act that the court still allows to be enforced. And what Alabama was saying essentially was that we shouldn't have to take race into account when we are creating our our, our congressional maps. Justice Roberts, and this is what's really surprising, because Justice Roberts has led the charge against the Voting Act in the last decade, was pretty much like, no, 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 not so fast, my friends, and said that Alabama did have to take it into account and essentially sent it back to them to draw another, draw a district to give Alabama another majority Black seat in line with the percentage of their population that is Black. This also affects Louisiana's map, which is already the court already sent back to Louisiana. And so at minimum, there's probably going to be two more majority black districts in the South, which has really enormous political consequences when you consider that the House of Representatives right now is is what, a 10-person majority right now for Republicans? And 
it also could potentially impact states like uh, New York and Wisconsin, which had struck down a democratically gerrymandered map in New York and uh, currently has a Republican gerrymandered map in Wisconsin. <clears throat> Again, I shouldn't have to say this, but I, we, speaking for do not support gerrymandered maps of any kind in any state. But like the the what the Supreme Court did again was say that like hey Alabama you, you don't get to do this you have to comply still with the Voting Rights Act and again I do think this was probably the most surprising case here and is going to have some real implications in twenty twenty four. Yeah, I, I mean <laughs> if you if you look at if you look at Alabama's the proposed congressional districts and the historical ones it is I mean now uh, you probably make the argument you look at New York's also laughable in in many ways in terms of how they would just like circle different neighborhoods um <laughs> and so put them into one district uh I think I think just the concept of gerrymandering is is an interesting one basically the idea is that like you concentrate everyone who you think will vote a certain way into one or, or as few districts as possible and that dilutes you know, the ability or like the possibility of swing districts. And so by doing that, you can, you know, greatly reduce how much the opposition has in terms of seats. So Alabama's, I think, has probably, you know, on par with the national average, 25 or 26 percent African-American. And they have what, eight, eight congressional districts or nine? I don't know, maybe not a ton, but I think they were they were it was basically one had a black or one or two had black representatives. So, you know, 10% or 20% of the votes for 25 to 30% of the population, um, which, um, yeah, I guess maybe it's, it goes without saying that's the intent behind gerrymandering. I guess it's, yeah, <laughs> it's like if, if they did anything else, this court, I mean, you you would almost like throw it, throw it out. Like it, in in many ways, a lot of the decisions that they've made, like have at least felt like they've had some, you know, legal uh, or you know a, a strong legal argument, regardless of whether or not you like sort of follow the logic or agree with the outcome. This case was basically like a almost like a test, like what. What can't can't we put in front of this court? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there were there were there were a couple of those cases. And obviously, like if you are a conservative lawyer or if you're a Republican-led state, you felt very emboldened by the 2021-2022 term and we're we're really pushing the envelope. And the, uh, a couple of decisions said that. It were written by Kavanaugh and by Gorsuch being like, this is this is really a novel argument that the states are trying to make here, uh, which like I think a little bit like chiding that just like just because we are, you know, we do view the law more conservatively doesn't mean that this is carte blanche to get any policies you want. Like I think Gorsuch said it in one of his opinions. He was like, this is the court is not just going to do government policy for you. If you want to make the policy, do it. That's not don't be bringing it here. But I guess like that's a, a good place to wrap up and echo kind of the conversation we had earlier is that like you do hope that one you get more action out of congress that that the supreme court doesn't have to be the arbiter of all of these rights and laws that affect our society in so many ways but then too like i am 
intrigued to see how this plays out, how these cases play out, because they have they have like real consequences in our politics and in, in our society. And it will be worth monitoring how they play out. And it also, I guess my final point, Ricky, is that like Supreme Court is not getting out of the news, given all the ethics issues that they've had. As, as we talked about, we had Thomas had the most agreed arguably the most egregious Alito checking in right behind him. And then a whole new set just came out this afternoon that said it named Sotomayor, it named Kagan, it named uh, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch as all kind of accepting these benefits that like may not be illegal, but it's not a great look either. The only ones that weren't named were Barrett and Jackson, who are the two newest justices and Justice Roberts, who I've said a million times in the podcast has got to be just sitting in his office with his head in his hands being like, come on guys. Uh, yeah, Alfred Lord Tenson, you know, he just keeps coming back. Yeah, well, your favorite power, it just corrupts absolutely. Yeah, I, you're not a you're not a tattoo guy, but I feel like if you were, that I, if I were, that would be <laughs> maybe you could put that on my gravestone. Yeah, know. yeah, we'll all right. That. Well, on, <laughs> on a positive note, it's a uh, beautiful day outside if you uh get out of those. Get out of those books. Maybe I'll go take the books outside. Right there you go. There you go. All right. We'll see you, buddy. Talk to you soon. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue debating all the issues of the day. No agenda, not yet Talking heads Running around till we forget Where it was we began Some mornings you were away Some morning left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give for Hope I used to find In a case of lion's hands Folks of different minds Because even though we did not share Pains we share that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way But to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better Than rain Somewhere along the line We seem to have forgotten Values sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, some morning let your ego bruise. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. And folks of different minds, because though we didn't share opinions, we share an American ideal. Friends made over arguments. In an early morning bus I need an early morning bus There's hope behind the bluster Cause the old Main Street may not sell It's full of folks just like you and me When we have trouble seeing The human for the politics It's time to find a better way to disagree some days you win, 
days will leave your ego through. But oh, I wouldn't give for hope I used to find and chase the lion's head. Folks of different minds because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz. Oh, what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. I need an early morning 